0: Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here, back with my trusty co-host, Sean Cheatham. He's back for uh, this evening. And then um, special guest, Andrew Work, who's going to be carrying our discussion today. Uh, We're going to be uh, talking about uh, analogy in God. How do we speak of God rightly, uh, given that God is uh, completely simple, that God is completely distinct and separate from His creation? Uh, so we're going to go through um, some models, if you will, and some discussions on, on how to properly speak of God, uh, really looking at good and necessary consequence from what we know about God's being and seeing how we can properly speak of God. Um, to kind of start us off in this, um, I want to read a section from The Failure of Natural Theology by Jeff Johnson, um, for those of you who may not know, we did an episode responding to this book. Go and check it out, um, where we go through in, in great detail uh, rebutting the book. But there's a section that's applicable to what we're going to be talking about today. You can find it on page 182 in the printed edition. Uh, it says, in the same way, for language of God to be truly analogical, some words must have the same meaning for God as they do for us, such as the word, uh, such as the word love. Of course, we don't have an exhaustive understanding of the word love, nor do we even come close to knowing love as God knows love. But if the word love for God and the word love for us does not at least have a small point of identity, we can no longer speak of language as being analogical. If there is no point of similarity, then the statement God is love means nothing at all. so that's really the crux of our discussion tonight, is analogy. When we ascribe things to God, are we speaking of him univocally, meaning in a one-to-one fashion, or are we speaking to him analogically in a way that is indirect, in a way that is still speaking of him meaningfully and truly, but um, at the same time in a way that is creaturely, um, that doesn't ascribe creatureliness to the divine essence. So that's what we're going to be discussing this evening. Um, And with that, Andrew, I'll turn it over to you to get us started.
1: All right, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for uh, that intro. So yeah, our motivation here, at least one of them, is uh, there is a lot of talk about the different kinds of uh, what we call predication. Uh, Many followers of the doctrine of God um, uh, debate have probably heard that we speak of God analogically, not equivocally or univocally, but it's pretty rare to get into more detail about what we really mean by analogy and how it avoids the issues that equivocal or univocal predication ways of speaking would get you into. And we just saw with Jeff Johnson, uh, even with a man like that, he, he runs a seminary. Uh, there's confusion about what the term means in its historical usage, because um, he he basically treats it as something with a univocal core. In other words, there's a core uh, uh, similarity um, in the things themselves Uh, and that's what he understands by analogy. Uh, but that's not how it's been historically, uh, used. And, and we are confident that a lot of other people were probably confused about, um, what exactly this means. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. And we got a PowerPoint to keep things a little bit more visually interesting for those who are watching and to help keep us on track, uh, too. So, um, the problem that we're trying to address when we're using analogical speech, what we're really trying to address is the uh, apparent conflict between two biblical truths, which is that God is completely other than his creature. He's completely different. There's an absolute creator-creature distinction. And the other biblical truth, which is that when the Bible uh, speaks about God, it's using meaningful language. It's not just talking in the wind. We're actually having God revealed to us in in some way. Um, So the issue is how can both of those things be true? How can God be so totally dissimilar to us? Uh, And also for us to be able to use our language, talk about him and to actually say something meaningful. Uh, And that's kind of the dilemma that, that, Uh, addresses us here. So uh, the first danger is if we adopted what's called univocal language. We've already used the term so far. It just means speaking about things the same way uh, as we do here. Like if we say that God is good in the exact same way that we are, or he's uh, holy in the same way a saint might be holy. If, uh, when the Bible talks about him having, uh, arms and wings if he has those in the same way that creatures do. Um, So you can see the problem with this. It's making God creaturely when we do this. It collapses the difference between the creator and the creature. And this is especially a problem in light of the biblical truth of divine simplicity, Uh, namely that God is without parts. All that is in God is God. So if any part of God, even the smallest part of him was in any way creaturely, then the entirety of God would be creaturely because he doesn't have parts where only one part could be affected and not the whole of God. And likewise, if anything in the creature had something in common with the divine nature, it would have the entirety of the divine nature because to have a part of God, so to speak, would be to have all of God. So clearly this is a problem. This leads to complete pantheism, and the difference between creator and creature collapses altogether. We make him entirely like us. Um, The other danger is the danger of meaninglessness. So if it was completely different, like, what does it matter that we say something like God is good, for example? What does that mean? What what does that assert about God any more than if you said God was evil? We know instinctively that's a bad thing to say because we know he's not evil. We know he's good. But what do we mean by that? If if our terms are completely meaningless, if we use equivocal language, if we use language where there is no similarities between uh, God as a subject or a creature as a subject. Um, in such a view, as Thomas Aquinas says, a reason cannot be assigned why some names more than others are applied to God. So, therefore, we need a third way of speaking. We can't speak either equivocally or univocally. We need uh, a third way, which we call analogy. So, um, to get into the history of the term, uh, Thomas Aquinas was really the one who popularized it. He's not the first one to use it the term, but he definitely popularized it and and kind of spearheaded a lot of the discussion uh, that we have today, although he himself didn't define what he meant that clearly. Uh, He kind of goes between two different models in his writings, uh, depending on uh, uh, what point of his life he was in. Uh, But even though the the term is new, the general concept wasn't new. Uh, So the term as used by, by Aquinas and his followers overlaps with Boethius's uh, category uh, called equivocation by design. So he had something called equivocation by chance. An example of that would be if we call a, 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 a bat a bat or a baseball bat a bat, like a bat, the animal, or the um, uh, baseball equipment. Uh, that's equivocation by chance. So you have two words with the same name, but for completely different reasons – uh, there's no reason why they're named the same. It just kind of happened that way. Uh, the other uh, category is equivocation by design, where there's actually a reason why they're given the same name. And this is uh, these are the subcategories that would be used by Aquinas and his followers, and and uh, described as uh, analogy. Uh, interestingly enough, one of these subcategories of uh, equivocation by design. Uh, Boethius called proportio, and he was actually just giving the name, uh, translating the name for the category Aristotle presented, which he called analogia. So one of the subcategories of analogy is actually called analogy. So that can be a little bit confusing. So we're going to call it proportio or proportion. Oh, Andrew,
0: Andrew's he's throwing Aristotle around. Look out! Uh
1: oh. Yeah, we're we're being bad Catholics. In fact, Catholics (laughs) uh, are great
0: philosophers.
1: Yeah. In fact, I've actually forgot to mention, and this is really going to get me in trouble. uh, Probably the most helpful resources I I had when uh, studying this issue. uh, And if you want to go deeper, I'd recommend it is a uh, book called Analogy After Aquinas. And this is by uh, Dominique de Tour, if I'm saying his name right. Um, and this was uh, published by Catholic university press. So we're being very bad Baptist today. (laughs) Um, but, but the reality is for those who actually have any concern with that, this is what we would call part of, uh, the, the lower C Catholic tradition Mm -hmm. in the sense that we're addressing a biblical problem. That is something that all denominations have to address. Now, of course the Catholic church has ignored some biblical problems altogether and uh, substituted tradition instead of the Bible. But there are a few areas like this in the Trinity where they've they've maintained uh, biblical truth in that area. And so uh, they have a long history of dealing with this issue. So if you if they're dealing with the same issue and they've spent a lot of time with it, it's worth consulting to see what they have, if it's any good. And and in this case, I, I think it is. I think this will be helpful for people. And truth what is... Question? Oh, no. sorry. Go ahead, Sean.
2: Truth is truth, no matter who says it. Um, so right. we might we might have outright heretics, flagrant heretics. and if they have a kernel of truth in there, we have to take it uh, seriously. and we we can potentially learn uh, from that. Uh, not that we shouldn't necessarily be on our guard um, that we wouldn't imbibe certain things that aren't true, but um, if if somebody says something's true, it's perfectly acceptable to uh, to follow their logic, assuming it is correct
0: yeah otherwise you fall into the genetic fallacy of just oh that person said it and because they believe this or said this or whatever i'm just going to throw out everything Yeah, we don't we definitely don't want to fall into that category um so andrew when you're talking about the history of analogy Um, Are you saying that Boethius was really the one who developed this concept as it relates to God uh, in the church? I mean, it was probably seen before,
1: but is he the one who kind of formalized it? So Boethius, when he was defining the categories, I don't even know if he was necessarily defining them to apply to God. He was more uh, commenting on Aristotle's works because Boethius was a big translator of Aristotle. And help to find to formalize a lot of those ideas for the rest of the Middle Ages. Uh, so what he did, he was very influential for the discussion going forth. I don't know if he actually applied it to God himself, um, but even so, uh, there's always been a universal recognition that when we talk about God, uh, he is completely different than us, and our terms don't capture what we're saying, like take Augustine, for example, when he was talking about the use of the term persons, he says, I'm not using person because it, it sufficiently describes uh, the persons of the Trinity, but just because I don't want to be reduced to silence, I got to say something. So there's always been that uh, universal recognition of the uh, ineptitude of language. Um, What Aquinas really did was, was help to Formulize a solution, or to at least begin to formalize, like a, 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 a more scientific, if we want to put it that way, solution to the issue. But it's always been something the church has kind of instinctively understood.
0: Got it. Makes sense.
1: All right. Absolutely. So uh, let's move on. Um, so now we're going to get to the to the problem. The problem of having a category of analogy. So we we saw the problem that analogy is trying to grapple with. But now there's a problem of whether analogy can even do the job, and this is what John Don Scotus uh, brings up. He lived uh, uh, around the same time of Aquinas. I think their lives overlapped slightly, but he's basically the generation after. Um, but he denied the legitimacy of analogical speech altogether. He, he argued for a form of univocal predication. Uh, at least from the standpoint of a logician. There actually is some debate, I'll say as a side note, of whether he believed that uh, we use the terms univocally uh, when speaking about God from a metaphysical standpoint. Uh, uh, But that's a complicated issue. It all depends whether in this one passage of his work he's qualifying himself or actually representing another position that it doesn't hold. So we won't get into that. Uh, But in any case, uh, his objection kind of sparked the the Thomas after him to try to defend the concept of analogy. Uh, So his argument is that uh, there is no third way of speaking, because either the terms have nothing really in common, in which case they're equivocal, uh, or else there is a similarity which implies a univocal core. Like, why is it a good analogy? It's, it's because they have something in common. It's got to have a univocal core, is is what he's arguing, and so the language would be just partly equivocal and partly univocal, rather than some kind of third way of of speaking, which means it doesn't actually address the problem of either avoiding meaningless language or uh, avoiding the creator creature uh, collapse. So that's a big issue. Uh, and again, I just want to note again that. This language of univocal core, that's essentially what Johnson um, yeah. thinks analogy is in his work. Uh, but that's actually the very thing that the very charge that the later Thomas are trying to defend analogy from is that there's a univocal core. It's uh,
0: interesting that you say that um, it doesn't really solve the problem either way. It, he's It's trying to combine both of those issues. It's trying to be equivocal and univocal at the same time, I think, while not being. It's trying to say that you can combine them together while neglecting a third option.
1: Yeah, not exactly.
0: any of those issues that are presented by equivocation or univocal language.
1: Yeah, because ultimately, if there's anything univocal in your analogy, like a univocal core of like where the the two analogates, so to speak, have in themselves like a real commonality, uh, then. And yeah, you have the issue we discussed at the beginning, which is destroying the creator-creature distinc- distinction, making yep. God entirely creaturely or the creature entirely divine. So you get pantheism. Um, so it's, it's just not good enough. Um, uh, another thing that kind of confused the matter further was uh, that as we saw, analog- uh, analogical speech was originally just a subtype of equivocal speech. And so that was kind of an issue because even Aquinas himself acknowledged that uh, equivocal speech is always uh, susceptible to what's called the fallacy of equivocation, which means you're using term because you're using the same name but for really different concepts. Uh, you can't really make a logical demonstration from that, you can't use a syllogism. Uh, otherwise, you'll say something like, Oh, um, bats are an animal, a baseball bat's a bat, therefore a baseball bat's an animal. Obviously, it doesn't follow that's the fallacy of equivocation. Uh, but it, the what's being called analogy actually fell under originally what was called an equivocation by design. So, so that creates an issue. Really that's an issue of semantics, but it kind of helped to hide in the issue in the minds of uh, people uh, trying to defend analogy. Um, Okay. But, but people did come up with solutions and I believe they're good solutions. So later medieval Thomas had various ways of solving the issue. Uh, But in order to be a viable solution, it has to do three things one has to explain what exactly is meant by an uh, analogical language. I have to explain how it is meaningfully different from equivocal and univocal language. And it has to explain how it avoids the fallacy of equivocation without making God-like creatures. So there are two main subcategories of analogy that are used for this purpose. Uh, they're both were used at one point by Aquinas in his life, uh, or another, uh, and various followers would, would, uh, embrace one the other or some mixture of the two okay so the first model is called the healthy model so uh to back up a little bit there there are four of these categories one is similitude proportion abuno and ad unum uh, and, and one of the first popular ways of doing it, uh, dealing with the analogy problem was an appeal to the ad unum type, which is what we're calling the healthy model. It's also what Dominique de and probably many others have called the healthy model. So we don't have to keep saying ad unum, ad unum. Uh, healthy model is easier to, to grasp. Uh, so it, it appeals to names based on uh, a priority and posteriority of relationship when, when you're predicating the names of them, uh, often by virtue of, of of the one thing producing an effect in the other and the example we'll keep going back to is is the healthy model where medicine is called healthy because it makes someone healthy so again so healthiness is said primarily of the thing made healthy but medicine is also healthy is called healthy because it produces that effect so it's kind of a cause and effect relationship and that's what gives rise to the analog- analogical predication, where you can say healthy of medicine. Uh, the other name, uh, the other type of model, rather, that we're going to be dealing with is uh, Boethius's proportio, uh, which is also called the principle model. Uh, so uh, this model refers to names based on similarity of principles or function. An example of this that's often given is, is, is that a point and a line are the first principles of different uh, genre. Um, so the, 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 the point is the fundamental zeroth dimensional object and the line is the fundamental first dimensional object. Um, and another good example, which I think is going to be even more helpful, is uh, that a mind is said to see like an eye is said to see. You have a similarity of function between the mind and the eye, and so they're both said to see. That's, that's the principle model of analogy. Uh, so how does this relate to God? Um, and again, uh, different men would champion one or the other or a mixture, but uh, in my opinion, both are actually quite useful in understanding the full range of the way that the Bible speaks about God. So we're going to start with exploring the healthy model. Uh, Particularly, the healthy model and the universals are the perfections. Um, So, when we understand that we do sometimes name things by virtue of the effect they produce, it helps us to understand how God is traditionally and scripturally identified with universals. The classic example is 1 John 4 8, God is love, or Christ's words in John 14 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible doesn't merely say that God is loving or God is true, it says God is the Truth, God is love, and following this, the, uh, the Christian tradition has been comfortable with calling God goodness Himself, mercy Himself, wisdom Himself. Uh, he in Proverbs, I would argue, is calling God wisdom Himself too when it's uh, prefiguring Christ in his descriptions of wisdom. Um, so uh, uh, just like medicine is called healthy because it makes one healthy. If we're comfortable with calling things by virtue of the effect they produce, uh, we should realize right away that God not only makes one healthy, He makes healthiness itself. He makes goodness itself. He makes mercy itself, truth itself. Uh, so he, He's uh, rightly, and, and I'd say He's rightly identified with these positive universals, these uh, perfections, as opposed to other things He creates, like evil, because they have a, a, a uh, they have pure manifestations of of isness where isness ought to be. Uh, as a side note, the episode that Dolezal was on recently, I think, would be very helpful uh, background for this section here. Uh, God is not the author of evil because evil has non-being. It's the absence of, of perfections. It's the absence of good where good ought to be. And the same thing is true of creation in general, even things that we wouldn't strictly call evil – uh, everything is essentially a uh, a combination uh, and uh, participation to a certain limit of the perfections. They they because because evil and lack isn't being itself. It's not a substance that God creates. God rather creates things that uh, that share in perfections equally or unequally. But the thing He directly creates, the things with isness, are the perfections. So that's why it's proper to say that it's more proper to say that God is goodness than it would be to say like God is chair or something like that, because the perfection is what he's actually directly uh, creating there. So it makes sense that we would speak of him that way. Um, so he's more suitably identified with those than anything in creation. Um, And the Bible supports that concept of uh, God not being the author of the imperfections, like we see in James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Obviously, God creates conditions in which people are tempted. He creates imperfect creatures that are capable of being tempted, but the substance of temptation or evil itself isn't a thing that's created. He just creates things with limited goodness, limited perfections.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, This kind of, I think that view is very consistent with um, the idea that God's attributes are not actually distinct in him. It's just who he is. It's God is not, uh, there's not like a part of God that's pushing forth goodness, and then we see it in his effects. We see the goodness in the effects that he creates, and then we're just saying that it's who God is. It's, it's the one attribute of God. It's not something particular of his essence that we can point out and really wrap our minds around. Um, mm. So I think that that model kind of helps to explain and to be consistent with the um, idea that God being simple is not composed of multiple attributes, but his attributes are um, essentially the same.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the perfections are only distinct in creation, but in himself right. they're yep. they're all all one and he manifests those attributes with the one same divine act. Yep. Um so to continue a little bit further just to kind of strengthen the association with God and his perfections um uh, by the perfections being a type of isness, so to speak, a type of of being without without privation, without a lack in them. Uh, where, uh, where something ought to be, uh, the universals have a participation in God, so to speak, to a degree that is unique to them. Now, some people might kind of step back when they hear the term participation. Uh, we don't mean participation in a pantheistic sense. We don't mean participation in the sense that, oh, they form part of God, uh, or the like, not as we know them in, uh, the creaturely realm, for sure. They do not. Um, uh, rather, when we talk about participation, we talk about it how uh, Christians in the past often would speak of it, uh, which is more like uh, the participation of a, a leaf in the wind. So it's y- y- the leaf and the wind are entirely distinct. The the wind isn't infused into the leaf, or the leaf into the wind. Uh, the leaf remains the leaf, uh, but nevertheless, it participates in a sense. It's it's acted upon by it. And, uh, the perfections in a very pure sense participate in God that way. In fact, all things participate in God in, in this sense, uh, because Acts 17, 28 says in him, we live and move and have our being. We're participating in his power, which is identical to himself, but yet we ourselves are distinct from him. Uh, but because these are the perfections that kind of ground our existence itself, they, it, 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 without any privation, they, they uh, participate in that isness, that, that, that power, that act of God in a more uh, unique degree, in a unique degree that nothing else does. Uh, so they, it makes them very suitable subjects uh, for the healthy model of predication, uh, the healthy model of analogy when we speak about God, because there's most pure effects. And to participate more in them is, in a sense, to participate more in God. All right, so that's the healthy model. Uh, the next model of analogy is the principle model. Um, so, uh, so that's all well and good to say that uh, God is goodness uh, himself, mercy himself. But He's more than just the cause of goodness, um, as Aquinas says in the Sumos. Uh, he causes goodness in things because He is good, and that's I think usually how the Bible speaks of Him. They talk, they speak of His. Goodness because of his doing good. He's redeeming his people, showing mercy to, to thousands uh, in his displays of justice in, in the world. Um, And the principle model of analogy allows us to to uh, say these sorts of things without destroying the creator-creature distinction. Because the things compared uh, are similar by virtue of their activities rather than the two things being compared Considered simply in themselves. Uh, so I'm going to quote from Dominique de Tour when he's summarizing the position of another Dominique, Dominique of Flanders, who is a 15th century uh, Thomist. And uh, he says uh, there is not simply speaking any particular relationship between the analogates themselves, which provides the grounds for the common name. Rather, the agreement between the analogates is found in the at once similar but different characteristics or activities of the analogates themselves. So again, this is the model of of both the mind and the eye being said to see. They have similar activities, and yet the mind and the eye are distinct. Uh, And to justify this, um, uh, I want to point out it's a very natural way of speaking. Like When we say that a soul is good and a tree is good, we are not intending to imply any similarity in the essences of the two or provide an explanation of what a soul truly is. Uh, We're not saying a tree is like a soul when we're saying a soul is good and a tree is good. Uh, uh, We're we're speaking in terms of of principle. Uh, A soul is good because it does good. A tree is good because it bears a good fruit. I don't know about you, but I don't really know What a soul is, I don't know how it works. I experience it, but it's a very mysterious thing. But I can still say things about it without comprehending it. Uh, And this is uh, this is why the principle model can be used without destroying the creator creature. Excuse me, the creator creature distinction, because we're not really saying uh, anything uh, about God that that demystifies him, so to speak. Uh, You can have utterly dissimilar things in one sense, um, be similar by virtue of their activities. I think a good example we have today are AIs. So the AIs can speak much like people can speak. You can have a conversation with an AI if they're sophisticated enough. Um, But uh, speech is something that the soul does. The the soul is behind speech, ultimately. The soul is the mover of speech, but it's not for an AI. And the AI has 0% soul in it. It is a purely material thing. Yet, nevertheless, they can do similar things. So I think that's a good proof that just because things have are performing similar activities doesn't imply that they're sharing uh, similar um, essences if you consider them as uh, they are in themselves. Um, likewise, there's analogy between our goodness and God's goodness. And God, in an infinitely higher capacity, can perform good to us, like creatures can do good to us, which He does. He does through through Christ. He shows goodness that no man is capable of showing to us. He sent His only begotten Son to die in the place of of sinners and lavish them with every spiritual blessings in the high places. Um, there's nothing else you can call that but good, and it is something God does, and so we can call God good because of this. And, uh, much more good than anything in creation. Um, yet in himself, he exercises the goodness in an entirely dissimilar way to us, much like a mind and an eye see in different ways. Uh, he he wills good to us in a, in a completely different way uh, than we will good. He in himself does his good through the one divine act, which is identical with his subsistence itself. This is completely incomprehensible to us, but we can understand that Though it's incomprehensible, he is good because he shows us he is good. He is good analogically. Uh, The other good thing about the principal model is that it solves the equivocation problem. Uh, That's something that the healthy model can't do very well. Uh, There have been some who have made some pretty noble uh, attempts at that, I believe. But it's difficult because, like we showed before, if you try to have a syllogism like all, uh, uh, for example, all healthy things are alive, medicine is healthy. It just doesn't follow that medicine is alive because you're really uh, naming healthy primarily of the, of the, of the thing experiencing the health and not medicine itself. Medicine is only called healthy in that secondary secondary sense, and that makes syllogisms uh, dangerous. Uh, the conclusions don't necessarily follow. Um, but insofar as the principle model uh, identifies real similarities by virtue of common activities, uh, syllogistic reasons, uh, syllogistic reasoning can be justified in those cases if we can identify what the similarities are. Uh, for example, we can say that good things do good. God is good, and it most certainly follows that God does good. Uh, to include everything, uh, both forms of analogy—that is, the healthy model and the principle model—can be useful to understand the full way. A full range of the way that the Bible speaks about God. The principal model is the usual way of speaking and allows for logical demonstration when talking about God. But the healthy model is also useful in helping us to understand how uh, God is identified with the universal perfections.
0: Wow, lots of good uh-huh. stuff there. Um, so it almost seems like both models are utilizing the same. Um, premise that god is known by his effects it's just a matter of how that's really applied one is talking about the universals and one is focusing more on the effects themselves but i think they both have the same premise
1: yeah absolutely because the reality is we can never observe god as he is in himself right Uh, we have creaturely eyes creaturely ears that can only pick up creaturely things uh so for to know god it has to be through his effects um, yeah, so they both operate off of that, but they do allow us, especially the principle model, to say true things about God himself uh, by virtue of the similarities we observe in his effects and our effects.
0: Yeah, because it almost seems like the the healthy model, um, it tries to have so much of a creator-creature distinction that it almost doesn't say that God is that thing Um, That he is producing to some extent, like when you talk about medicine, when we're saying that medicine is we're saying that medicine is healthy by virtue of its effect. That's not saying that the medicine is necessarily inherently healthy. So if you just take that model, you might, um, I, I guess, in applying it to God, you might say, well, God is simply just applying good things in his creation. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's really good in his essence. He's just good by virtue of what he does but not necessarily who he is. And I think that's where the principle model comes in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's accurate. Um, yeah. Cause the healthy model can only, uh, uh, it only, it only says these names in a secondary way about God. It right. actually says these things primarily of the things that we uh, see in creation. Um, so whereas the principle model will say both of them, like in that primary sense, so to speak.
0: Sean, you want to add anything else?
2: Yeah. um, So you said that there were originally four models. Did you find the other two models to be um, good ways of explaining analogy or not at all? Uh,
1: It it just doesn't really apply to God. It's not that they're not useful. Uh, It just doesn't apply to God very well. Um, uh, Actually, the first model, which is similar to it, would be more what Jeff Johnson, I guess, would mean by analogy which is that there's like a real similarity in the things of themselves um and but that's that was never embraced by people who are defending the analogy model they would always use either the principal model or the healthy model um that was just one of the subcategories boethius had um but um and then the other one is is ab uno which actually refers to the things having a common genre so they're different species of the same uh genre um
0: that would be problematic. That's, int- when we're that's about God. heavily problematic. <laughs> that puts yeah. them There's on no... the category of creatures.
1: That exactly. And that's why no one uses it. That's why no one uses that right. when talking about God. So it's really only uh, the two that I mentioned that are uh, even possibilities. If we're going to try to answer the, the that. two problems. Sorry?
0: Oh, I was just saying, Aquinas was specifically against utilizing genus and species when talking to God. In the yeah,
1: soul. yeah, and they, and they all were. Yeah, even even Scotus I think would have been against using that. Mm. I don't know how Scotus justified his methodology really, unless he unless he really did think this was only from a logical standpoint and not. A well, yeah, because once
0: you utilize any kind of univocal language, even in a supposed analogy, it's no longer an analogy. It's exactly you're mixing categories at that point.
1: Yeah, and he wouldn't say that he believes in an analogy. He was was against it. But but the issue is you destroy the the creator-creature distinction that way. I don't know how he would rescue it. I don't know if he even really tries to, honestly. Uh, I haven't read enough SCOTUS to Mm. be able to tell you that.
0: So it almost seems like Jeff, in that quote that I read, um, is trying to preserve analogy, because I think he does think that analogical language is right. He just doesn't see God as so different from his creation that we can't speak of him um in any meaningful way I guess.
1: Yeah he, he's just using analogy in a non-traditional way because right. when Christians have done it in the past if they've spoken of those two categories the healthy model and the principal model but he's he's using one that was never used because it doesn't actually solve the problem that it's trying to by avoiding univocal right. Medication. You might as well just go the 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 proud scotus and, and say that yeah we're using these things univocally at that point right
2: well most christians i would imagine even those on the opposite side of the debate would recognize the validity of analogy in some circumstances um because they do read passages where god is said to have wings and they recognize oh no this is this is a metaphor this isn't meant to be taken literally i think the issue is uh seeing that everything needs to be thought about in that way and not just certain passages. I think that's where probably the disconnect comes in.
0: Yeah, like when we're, I think especially when we're talking about the image of God, how man is made in the image of God, well, we say man is made in the image of God because there are things that appear, at least appear to be similar in us and God. Um, You know, we have, uh, we believe in, we have some sort of morality. We have a conscience where, Um, thinking, understanding uh, human or creatures Mm -hmm. as opposed to to animals. So I think when we we look at the image of God, we tend to utilize language that tends to blur those distinctions um, that we have to keep when we're talking about God's creation and God himself.
1: Yeah. uh, In fact, I like what you said about us being in the image of God there, because I think... uh, thinking about it in this way actually helps us to understand what exactly that means, because I would argue that the reason man is in the image of God is because he's capable of participating in all of those perfections, all of the universals Mm -hmm. uh, uh, of of creation that, that allows him to model them uh, in a better way than say a rock can, because it can't participate in wisdom or, um, and and, and the like. So that, and it also helps us to understand uh, how, Christ perfectly, when he's perfectly playing the part of the image of God, he is, in his humanity, uh, actualizing those perfections in the most mm-hmm. perfect way a man can uh, actualize it. So that's why uh, both his, not only is he God incarnate, but his humanity actually uh, serves to perfectly image God as greatly as anything in creation can be. Because well, we that's see what we that actually language, and... directly, it's human nature.
0: Yeah, well, we even see that language used of Christ in the scriptures. He's the image of God, right? Uh, And that's pointing to his deity, um, but it's also talking about him in his incarnation as well. He is the perfect image of God. He is what the perfect image of God in humanity would look like. um, Exactly. Just being so in the incarnation in that case. Amen. All right, Sean, anything else to add before we close?
2: Uh, no, um, I think I'm good. All Glad right. to be back on.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you back, Sean. Mm-hmm. It's good to have mm-hmm. you back. Well, Andrew, apparently, thanks. No, go ahead, I'm Sean. Gonna, I was just
2: going to say, apparently I do remember how to be a uh, podcast host, so that's ah. good. And then you're going to forget again, aren't you? Yep.
1: <laughs> just remember next time you're sharing a PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and Andrew, thank you, brother, for, so much for having, having me. Yeah, so yeah thanks big.
0: for coming on. I really appreciate it. Definitely difficult concepts. So this is definitely probably the most technical um, episode we've done, but it's good. It's good that we mm. expand our minds and and get into these things because we're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about God, the most important, uh, the most important being that we will ever. Uh, know and that we we need to make sure that we know as revealed in scripture so it's good to to dive into these difficult things but thanks for taking us through these things and um, that everyone there won't be an episode this saturday this is our episode for the week so lord willing we'll be back next saturday Um, but with that everyone have a great week and we'll see you again next week